In the beginning, there was darkness. Then, there was Paul Brown. Paul Brown transformed the game. Hello, Paul Brown here. Welcome to the first ever International Browns Podcast. birthday to me. No, this is not the Paul Brown podcast. This is the Cleveland Browns podcast. And I'm here with the maestro, Jack Duffin, who's absolutely been smashing it up with 24-7 content. And I'm here with Ian Wright, who actually got some predictions correct in the draft. So, guys, Cleveland Brown has, I'm going to guess, eight new players and a few undrafted free agents. How are we all feeling? First of all, Good morning, Paul. Mm-hmm. You you missed the good morning, Cleveland, so we're saying good morning, Paul. How are you uh, feeling today, Paul? Uh, head is sore. So uh, I did more of the European-style birthday where you celebrate at midnight. I don't know if you do that a lot in America, but yeah, I definitely did party hard into the night. Was, was enjoying the draft. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to put my hands up really honestly and say, I don't know, because we haven't got a first round, second round pick. Uh, it wasn't the most followed draft that I've done as a Browns fan. And um, I was really impressed with Jack Duffin's undrafted free agent ownership in my absence. Yeah, no, we've got some good ones. We'll get to go through the picks first. But uh, there is some uh, four UDFAs that uh, take my fancy. Well, everything's good here in Chicago, Jack. I, he's been ripping. It's good to see him actually sleep, you know, because I know he was on. You were on what the OBR stream for how many hours? All two hundred and fifty-nine picks. I was live for. So, uh, oh no, actually, because they cut the stream off with like ten picks left after the Browns traded out. So I had planned to go through, but everyone else was going out to do you stuff. You missed Mister Irrelevant. You missed Mister um, Irrelevant. Ugh, unbelievable. But uh, no, it had an absolute blast. Um, and thanks to everyone. There, there were several listeners I know who uh, were jumping in the comments and stuff. Uh, it's great fun. Um, by the time you all listen to this, there'll be an article out on my 53-man roster prediction. But let's go through draft pick by draft pick. We'll touch on some UDFAs and then some free agents we like. Um, over the next couple of weeks, we'll do deeper looks into position rooms and what that means for not just this year and beyond. Um, yeah, we'll go there. Absolutely. All right. Well, this one was kind of easy, Jack, because before we get into this, I know you you were on the OBR stream, but I'm just going to tell you this. I watched the NFL Network because I'm not a big ESPN coverage fan. I watched the NFL Network. The league right now thinks the Browns are one of the most uninteresting teams there is. The amount of draft coverage that the Browns got, even when it was their turn to pick, was minimal to none. You'd get maybe 10 to 15 seconds of whatever the truck had on the highlight reel for each player. Some players they didn't even cover as the later rounds and picks. A lot of people were like, oh, it's because the Browns didn't pick the third round. The Rams didn't either. And I got to see their draft room, war room, and every other room that they had a hundred times. So currently, I'm just going to tell you, the league has no interest in talking about the Browns. They, they gave small the little things. Refused to have cameras in their room, um, which could have been a factor why the media were... Uh... Possible, but it. even the breakdown. So they'd be like, oh, the Browns picked uh, Dewan Jones. Uh, he plays basketball. And on to the next pick. Like, 
they they didn't talk about the position fits. They didn't talk about the team, the roster. It just seemed like they just didn't want to touch it. It was one of those interesting things. So we're going to give you hopefully a little bit more than the NFL. And I don't know, maybe ESPN was better. I don't know. But uh, hopefully we can give you a little bit more insight than the NFL Network did. So first up is Cedric Tillman. Um, wide receiver. I, I, hey, he was your guy. We, we sat there two days for the draft and spoke about which wide receiver you think we'll take at um, 74. And to be fair, it's a name I had really not heard anyone brought up in the main sort of conversations names. And you just went, I think it'll be Cedric Tillman. I really like him. And mm-hmm. lo and behold, you said, hey, anything from DPJ to Drake London, that sounds fun. Well, and the reason is, Jack, and when I, when I was going through the receivers, we have a lot of a certain style of receiver, right? We have a lot of the, you know, especially after getting Elijah Moore, I think that kind of started showing you what the Browns were going to do with their wide receiver room. So just off the top of your head, Jack, I'm going to ask you how many receivers, and we're just going to use Brugler's uh, the beast here, right? So of Brugler's top 20 receivers, so number 20 ranked, he has is Parker Washington, just so you know. How many receivers are 6'2 or larger? I'm going to say five of the 20. Three. Quinton Johnson is six, two and a half. The other one outside of Tillman is A.T. Perry, who's 24, but he's six, three and just under a half. I'm sorry. Six, yeah. Six, three and six, three, four. Um, and Cedric Tillman is six, three, three. And did so A.T. Perry not get drafted? He did, but later in the draft, he was later, later. Um, but you're talking about the top 20 receivers. Three guys are over 6'3". The Browns don't have that. Isaiah Weston's the only receiver we had that was bigger. And what put me onto the Cedric Tillman train was when college football was going on, our boy, you know, Owen Jones was just hamming out the wide receivers. And he kept sending us guys, say, hey, what did you think of this guy? Hey, what did you think of this guy? You know, and he sent me Jalen Hyatt. You know, obviously at this time he was going for the Blitnikoff. And every time I watched Tennessee, I was like, who's the other guy? Like, who's the big guy? You know, because don't get me wrong. Hyatt, he's fast. We're going to talk a very touch about him because, Jack, he was obviously taking the one pick before Tillman. But I kept saying, well, Tillman. And they're like, hey, he's a little older. You know, he's 23, you know, blah, 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 blah. But he stands out on tape because of his size. He attacks the ball. And I'm like, that's the receiver I think the Browns would really benefit from because we don't have anybody like that. No, no. Guys, I've got, I've got a question for you guys. Um. It seems like the Browns love taking a wide receiver in the fourth, third and fourth round. We've had uh, David Bell. We've had Swartz. We've had, okay, uh, Donovan Peoples-Jones was a bit later. But um, do you think this was always the plan to try and get a wide receiver or it just fell in into the Browns? It's such a valuable position that they want to address it high. They were going to take John Mitchie a year ago. And they got a trade offer that was just too good to turn down. And quite frankly, I think it was right to take that. When you get the picks that Martin Emerson, Winfrey and Cade York for a guy that you were going to take wide receiver, you, you, you do go and take that trade. They were interested in Elijah Moore previously, but he was gone. So they took JOK. Um, they have been aggressive and do want to, We had C.D. Lamb that they're interested in um, taking if we go back a bit further than that, I believe. Um, Rondell Moore too, right? Wasn't Rondell Moore the... Yeah. Uh... The year we took Delpit? Yep. I think that was in that conversation. So they've been keen to take them. They've just never sort of worked out. It's it's a mixture of the board and everything hitting at the same time as the players you want. 
Um, but they, they know they need to address the position. They need to get cheaper and they need to get better. And I, I think DPJ's agent is well aware of this. His time in Cleveland is probably coming towards an end in a year. Well, and here's the thing about Donovan Peoples-Jones, right? It's not that we don't like the player. I just, when I look at him, I just don't see 10 to $12 million a year. He's one of those guys where you're a sixth round pick. You've come in, you've produced. I just have a hard time, you know, and listen, I know 10 to 12 million isn't what it used to be in terms of contracts. I get that. I just, I see a guy who operates within a system, you know, and it's nice sometimes having a receiver, you know, we talk a lot about yak and, you know, underneath and a lot of that West coast offense scheme with crossers and stuff, but it's nice to have these bigger receivers, you know, and Amari Cooper's, you know, six one you know people's jones is six two but i mean when i when you look across the board and you're down to people's jones's agent you're like hey he's one of the bigger guys well i hate to break the news guys the only receiver on the browns roster that's taller than me is isaiah weston because me and me and dpj are the same height you know and and a lot of times they aren't six two when they say they're six two so my guess is he might be even a touch shorter than me so when you look at these things you just say all right the agent's like hey you drafted cedric tillman Okay, if you want to stay, Donovan, that's fine. But maybe you're in the six to eight million dollar range. I feel a lot more comfortable about him coming back at that price. Yeah, and it's one that we can see in a year's time. But I think they're going to play the year out, and then they'll get around the table and discuss it. And they might decide actually, Tillman, DPJ, Moore, Bell, all these guys are playing well. Maybe we'll do a deal and we'll move on from Amari. Um, yeah. So there's certainly those conversations. But what you want to do is you build in options. Because they've now got the option where they can move on from DPJ in a year's time, provided Tillman shows something. Um, whereas you didn't want to get to the point where we only had two wide receivers really last year. We had DPJ and we had Cooper and that was it. Um, there were some other guys on the roster, but no one of note. Whereas you're now in a position where you've got six guys where you're like, hey, these six guys are good. Um, and it's about, all just going to be about competition, who plays well. And then you can decide who you keep in a year's time. They'll probably draft another one in a year's time. So second, third round pick probably could be a wide receiver. The, the funny thing is I use the famous quote from Paul Brown. We say this every year about our wide receivers and then come the Hall of Fame game, we're sitting there you know, hyping up the UDFA. So I think to Paul's point that he's made and you know numerous shows before is it's nice now maybe being a little bit longer than, you know, the three or four top heavy deep, right? We're starting to sit there and look at it and you put, there's six locks for wide receiver and there's two other guys in the, in the mid category that you're like, Hmm, okay. But the one thing that was kind of interesting about this pick, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, Jack and you as well, Paul. So the Browns are approaching, you know, that number 74 pick and right before the pick, boom, the, the little moniker shows up that there's a trade and everybody's like, Son of a biscuit, somebody's jumping up to take whoever the guy the Browns are going to take. And then the trade comes up that it's the New York Giants. And it's ironic because 73 used to be Cleveland's original pick that they traded to Houston. Houston traded it to the Rams, and the Rams then traded it to the Giants. Well, the Giants come all the way up from, I believe, like 80, somewhere in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken, like 89. And they got ahead of the Browns, and they took Jalen Hyatt. I don't think... The Browns were taking Jalen Hyatt. I, I think that the, the, the Giants, the Giants took Jalen Hyatt. I don't think they were jumping the Browns uh, to take our guy. And the reason is, is because the Browns had several opportunities to take other receivers that are similar to that Jalen Hyatt mold, Tyler Scott, you know, those guys, those fast ones. And they chose not to. I think they were jumping the Browns because the Browns, when they called them, said, we're going to stay pat. 
I think they jump the Falcons. Jalen Hyatt and the Falcons at pick 75 makes a lot more sense because if I have Drake London on one side and Jalen Hyatt on the other side, that makes a little bit more sense after they lost Calvin Ridley. So I think, Jack, to your point about always trading around and trading down, I think that when the Giants called the Browns, the Browns said, we're staying where we're at because we know that if we trade back, we're not going to get the guy we want, and we want Tillman. I think Tillman was the target. I think the Browns stayed where they wanted, and it made the Giants continually have to move up the board ahead of the Browns to find that spot so they could go get Jalen Hyatt. I think Hyatt was going to be an Atlanta Falcon. Yeah, I'm intrigued. I I wonder if Marvin Mims would have been in consideration. That's the only one. I would love to just stick some uh, truth simmer in Anderbury because anytime you speak to a GM, they're like, oh, no, this was always my guy. Um, he yeah. went 10 picks earlier to pick 63. Um, but that that was the only other intriguing one. I, but yeah, at the time, I wasn't impressed with the Tillman pick. But the more I sit there and think that, I'm, I'm really, really happy with it. Um, In the wild card question. Yeah. Sorry for interruption. I've got a quick question. Do you think um, in the draft room, teams are telling other teams who they're going to pick? Yes, it does happen. So, for example, if you're the Giants and you're saying, hey, Andrew, I'm calm, I'm calling you. I'm trying to get ahead of Atlanta. They're going to take Hyatt. I want Hyatt. Who are you taking? Are you going to take Hyatt? And they say, no, we're taking Tillman. And he goes, okay, well, dude, just call the next pick ahead, right? So they call the Rams. The Ram- they would absolutely let him know because the team, if you're trying to jump somebody else, they will let them know. So, for example – the fourth round started, Paul, and you had the first three picks were all traded. Every team that traded for that pick knew exactly who the player was that was going before them. Because if the trade is made on the clock, then you know that they they probably were shaking something out where a team wouldn't give up info. But a lot of the times, yes, the teams know. Thanks for that. But, Jack, the, the wide receiver class was real interesting. And, you know, to Paul to Paul's point about, you know, was this, you know, kind of the Browns strategy? I think it's a lot of team strategy. I mean, when we scan through that second round, right, we're talking about Jonathan Mingo going at 39. You talked about him, there was talk of him going late first. I mean, hell, he didn't have to wait too long on day two to get his name called at pick 39. Then you had Jaden Reed, who skyrocketed. This guy was a fourth round day three pick that all of a sudden got taken in the top 50. And then you had the cheese take Rasheed Rice. Then you had Marvin Mims, to your point, the Broncos. Like a lot of these receivers started going. And then you had, you know, Tank Dell go to the Texans. Boom. Then you had a back-to-back Tennessee receivers. So I think there was a lot of targets where teams were saying, we're going to use these day two resources on these wideouts. And I think to your point, it's because these guys are able to step in in playing college football. The position differential between pro and in college isn't as great as it is in some other positions. So I think that they know if I at least spend a day two asset, they can get something productive out of it. And you need three of them. Every team needs three wide receivers. So you're talking about 100 wide receivers are realistically starting week in, week out, which is is crazy. You don't have that in another position room outside of maybe corner. Um, but then even with corner, you, you tend to rotate slightly more than you do into 11 personnel, which every team's over 50% of the time. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that's there. I think we've covered it really well. Just to run through who the six are, because we didn't say it. Cooper, DPJ, Bell, Goodwin, Tillman, and uh, Moore. Um, always forget for some reason. They're the six. because well, we, we just traded well with it. Um, it could be one where they do something crazy near at the um, trade deadline, and they could potentially call an NFC team if they lose a wide receiver. And yeah. 
we get we could get to a point where DPJ falls down this depth chart and isn't starting if these guys develop and play well. So it's going to be intriguing. It, it's really nice to have six guys that if last season we'd have lost DPJ and Cooper, it was over. Whereas you could lose those two and we're still going to be competitive. It's not going to be as good because those two are really good players. You mean it's, it's not going to be as bad as the Jets parking lot game? That was bad, yeah. Yeah. And and to your point, Jack, if if we have a situation where Cedric Tillman comes in as a rookie and beats out Donovan Peoples Jones for playing time, hallelujah. I mean, we this is exactly what you want. So all right, we're gonna move off the Tillman pick, but like we do every year, just to give you a high level. What does the beast Dane Brugler say about Cedric Tillman? He was his eighth ranked wide receiver, had him as his 57th overall prospect. It says a two-year starter at Tennessee, Tillman was an outside receiver in head coach Josh Heupel's up-tempo spread offense, lining up exclusively on the right side of the formation. After a breakout junior season, his senior year was marred by an ankle injury, but still finished top 10 all-time in Tennessee history in touchdown catches with 17 and holds the school record for consecutive games seven with a touchdown grab. Tillman has above average hands with the catching range and body type to be effective on slants, stops, comebacks, or when tracking downfield. He can open his stride and maintain his acceleration through the stem, which is your route tree. So a stem is basically when you come up and you make the decision on what route you're going to run. They call that the stem but lacks the short area quickness or detailed urgency to easily create separation. Overall, Tillman might be limited to a linear route tree, but he is a big target with the acceleration, play strength, and ball skills to exploit perimeter matchups. He has NFL starting traits as an X and should develop into a solid number two, number three receiver. And just to touch on PFF to pair that in, because I think the two are both worth looking at he's rated as their 61st best prospect and their eighth best wide receiver. So, um, no, it, oh, six, six, three, two, 13, six, three, two, 13, uh, 10 inch hands, 4.57, 4.54 in terms of his 40. So he's a four five guy at six, three, two, 13. This I is the big body. The Browns need and line him up in the red zone with some of the other big guys. We got at tight end. I like it. I'll just touch on age. He was, he's the oldest third round pick they've taken, or sort of day one, day two pick. Comes in at 23.5. Um, and the interesting thing to note effectively with the two guardrail changes, um, I'll write about this more later in the week, whenever. Um, effectively, in the past, we've considered the third round grouped in the first and second round. It's now just going to be grouped in with the fourth and fifth. So both of these two guys, we'll touch on the next guy. They're, they would be perfectly fine if they were taken as a fourth round. The guardrails, hey, it's an evolving process as we learn more. So moving into next season, we'll look at them as third, fourth, and fifth round picks rather than one, two, three. Yeah, I also do think, Jack, that with the COVID year, you're going to have a couple outliers. You are, just because guys didn't play as much. It was a little different football. But all right, Cedric Tillman, welcome to Cleveland. Look forward to having someone taller than me in the wide receiver room. But now this is my favorite. We get to move on. Jack's favorite pick. This pick, I'm just telling you, lit him up like a Christmas tree. Paul, I know you're a little short on time. Anything you want to add about the mountain of the man, Siaki Ika? This is just riveting. All right. So Paul is just in the process of doing several things. But Jack, pick number 98 rolls around. There's a lot of guys still left on the board. The Browns decide to go 
with the mountain of the man, six foot two, just shy of six foot three, 335 pounds. Siaki, Siaki, Apu, nickname Apu, Ika from Baylor, the nose tackle, 335 pounds of wide man in the middle. Jack, what was your initial take on this pick? I thought someone was pulling my leg when they put in the comment section on the OBR stream that we took Ika. I was like, ah, you're just joking. Um, and then it actually got announced. So um, not pleased. Um, to summarize Jack's comments from our last podcast on Ika, there's the uh, Siaki Ika, no chance. RAS, terrible. Moving on to the next one. We spent all of about 0.7 seconds talking about Siaki Ika. So it's, it's not just the Raz, because... Sometimes the RAS score can be misleading. If he does a bench press, suddenly the RAS score jumps probably a whole one point, a uh, whole one point zero. I think it came in about a three point nine. If I put in what he got, is same as Snacks Harrison um, when he did thirty four bench press. But it's the position role that frustrates me. He is a run stuffing defensive tackle. Has a lot better pass rushing grade than people give him credit for. I'll say because it was it better than Dexter's. Clear. It's like 20 cold points clearer than Dexter. So I always set the bar, um, wrote on it um, for all of the pass rushers, um, D-line prospects in the league and said, hey, if they're under 75.0, probably not going to be on the Browns board. And he he beats that um, in pass rush grade, not by much, but he's there. So I think he will do more. And they've even spoken in the press conference. They're no longer going to expect him to be a run Blocker, they, they're going to ask him to try and get into the backfield on snaps. Um, they said that in their post-press conference, and that was some of the first comments the coaching staff have made to him as a player since joining the Browns. They don't worry about the, that. You just get into the backfield. Yeah, here's the thing with, with Ika. The Browns are going to be exploring different defensive fronts, right? And I think that's one thing that we have to kind of train ourselves as Browns fans to think outside of the box. We don't have Joe Woods anymore. We have Jim Schwartz. Everybody told me that Jim Schwartz is the czar of defensive line. So you're going to have to understand that there's probably a reason they selected him. Jack, you'd made some points about getting this role in free agency. You're right. You can probably go out and find a 335 pound guy to stick right in the middle of your line that just eats up blockers in space. However, they're sitting there going, this is a guy who maybe offers something else. We don't know because we've not seen Jim Schwartz's defense. But I will just tell you this. If Miles Garrett and you have these edges rushing on the wide nine and you have them outside, if you get a guy in the middle who cannot anchor, right, and hold the middle of the field, in the middle of the line, and he gets pushed, the middle of the field is wide open. Because what happens is you got your edges so far outside. We remember from the Chargers game last year how easily they beat us up the A-gap, up the two, up the three. So if you at least have somebody as a two-down player who can just muck up the middle, right, he may work himself into sacks because Miles is coming with unprecedented bend and speed. I mean, we all know when they talked about one of our picks coming up, we'll talk about him. Miles' get-off, Miles' burst, and Miles' bend is second to none in the league. So if a quarterback decides to step up in the pocket, you're going to have Ika there to say, hey, man, that's where he's going to have to strive in terms of his pass rushing. His job is going to be to collapse the pocket from the middle so we can collapse the pocket from the edges. And I think when you look at it, I mean, just again, we're just going off of, you know, Brugler saying he was the highest rated nose tackle, number eight D tackle pro prospect overall. But all the guys ahead of him, you know, we're talking about Jalen Carter. These guys are a little bit more of your your shoot the gap penetrating style. Ika was the top-rated nose tackle on the board. 
in the draft. Yeah, and we've seen Asian Robinson went for five million in free agency. I know there's some incentives being reported on there, but his actual contract's five million. Um, I think you can get an Al Woods for sort of three million, and um, probably a Puna Ford probably gets nearer that five million. But I, I think somewhere in that, I would cap it at sort of five million. I don't think you're paying this guy sort of five million a year. As, as sort of a, a, a primary run-stuffing defensive tackles, they don't tend to get more than five million a year. So if you say that's a rookie contract, 20 million a year, four-year deal, is what you could realistically get in free agency to replace that. So Ika's contract, provided he plays enough snaps and gets the proven performance escalator, he's going to be just over seven million. So let's just say seven million. So if he turns out to be Puna Ford, Al Woods, um, Sean Robinson, you're talking about a 20 million over four-year deal for 7 million. So you've, you've effectively saved 13 million. And this is where I could then get into the debate of, hey, whether it's Blake Freeland, Adebore, um, whichever spot you want to go for, you've got guys that you're paying much more. Even if you don't want Bradford at guard, you've got guys that are ideally going to be 10 million contracts. And that's the sort of surplus value stuff that Ideally, with this pick, I would like to have gone in a different direction. If, though, he turns out to be a sort of cheap, not cheap, a, a, a sort of a Poundland version of um, Vita Vea, because he isn't Vita Vea. He doesn't have the athleticism. But if he just provides some pass rush in the middle on his 400 snaps effectively he's going to play each year, because he's not going to play loads of snaps, even once he becomes a starter, then there, there is value he can provide. Um, the other thing, and my concern remains, you're going to rely on him to play about 400 snaps as a rookie. That is what the main part that concerns me because we, no one knows how well he's going to adapt to the NFL. Generally, it takes people on the D-line a bit longer, um, whereas you know a Woods can step in and play 400, 450 snaps. Yeah, and Jack, one of the, your exercises we did pre-draft was kind of looking at the picks around that, right? So if we look at kind of the little bit of a bubble, so we're going to just take all the, you know, the compensatory picks there from 96 to 102. You know, the only other D tackle that was taken was Broderick Martin, who, you know, Brugler had rated as the 23rd D tackle, seventh round grade out of Western Kentucky. So sometimes these, these rankings are a little all over the map, but then you had a center from Arkansas, then Ika, the pick right after Ika, Jake Moody, the kicker. So it could have been worse in terms of what those comp picks are. But yeah, we had Moody, the kicker, Trey Tucker, the kid from uh, Cincinnati, the speedster, uh, Cameron Latu, and then uh, Makai Blackman. So that's the range of players. I think sometimes we got that Danny Shelton thing in our head, and then we forget that Danny Shelton was a top 15 pick. So if you can get a guy, to your point, that's going to play 400 snaps, which is around 30 to 40%, on average, your defense, about 1,200 snaps a year. Using the 98th pick on this won't be the worst thing. Now, if the guy turns into Tommy Togi, I can't see the field and just then it's a bust no matter what. Right. But at the end of the day, like if you can get a guy that fits a role and he holds, you know, the guy I kept looking at as a comp was Michael Pierce, you know, the guy out of Baltimore for a number of years that just basically was a big man in the middle. You talked about Calais Campbell and the other guys. Well, the, one of the reasons they were so productive is because when you have a guy in the middle, like Michael Pierce eating all this up, it keeps your linebackers clean. It keeps your edges clean because now you can't shift the line and say, all right, I'm going to just put all the weight out there on the outside versus miles or against Oboe. You know, you got to keep some girth in the middle because if I go one-on-one -on -one with a Ricky Stromberg versus Ika, you're going to get some penetration up the middle. 
And we all know penetration up the middle is a quarterback nemesis. Yeah, and it's one that like, my issue isn't with adding this role. It's just where mm-hmm. they've gone to add it. And yeah. to be fair, it's better value than either of the Lions picks in the first round. They were laughable. Um, so it's one that I, I get what they're trying to do. I just wish they'd addressed it differently. And we'll touch at the end of the show on free agents, but there's one I want to touch on here just because I think it's relevant. I believe Al Woods is still very much in play um, because you can have an Al Woods and a um, Eka, and then you, you just revert them between each other because Al Woods can play 400 to 450. This guy probably plays about 400. That's more or less your one tech wrapped up. And then you've got um, Tomlinson and then you bring in another whoever. Do, wins don't you think that. though Tomlinson's going to play more that one tech? I mean, the Giants tried moving him outside a little bit and then the Vikings, I could see them rotating and just saying on pass rushing downs, Tomlinson's going to play the one tech and on big jumbo runs and stuff, they're going to use Ika for that 40%. I don't disagree. They could bring in a vet, but in this sense, I don't think they need one. It just really depends on what their role is and depends on what Tomlinson really wants to do. Because if he says, hey, I have no problem being a little bit more of a penetrating style one tack and you're going to let Ika develop behind me, it could work out. Paul, before we uh, get through the summary on Ika, anything you need to add? Yeah, kind of my question was week one, do you see this just draft pick being a lot of the time on the field or you think it's going to be a bit of a development player? He is locked in as rookie of the year. Just because he's the only one that realistically in this entire draft class that might get 100 plus snaps this season. It's a valid point. I didn't even think about it at that point. He's talking obviously about the Browns rookie there, not the NFL rookie there, everyone. Um, yes, I think you're probably going to maybe see him eight to 10 snaps, right? So a lot of people last in, you know, and the Eagles and Jordan Davis and stuff. And if you look, the guy played 270, 290 snaps, right? So 20 odd percent of the team snaps. If I can get for the first few weeks, that 10 to 15 snaps where we're talking big jumbo, just get in there, let him mix it up, get the feel of the NFL game. I think that's good. But yes, I would expect barring an injury him to be at least on the field doing something special teams related and defense related in terms of very small uh, packages, jumbo packages on the defensive line. Yes. Yeah. In so. terms of rotation, Tomlinson is going to be 600 to 650. Um, I think is probably around 400 across the season. And I agree with Ian that they'll probably build it up slightly. Um, and then you've got two other guys to take the rest. Um, they average, I think it was one point, it was like 1.86 um, defensive tackles, I think per snap last year. So you do come slightly under the, two per mm-hmm. snap because you'll have somewhere miles is inside etc and some different fronts where you might only have one dt um yeah. and, and listen i think jack the one thing about this pick is it puts perry on winfrey it puts uh mo hurst it puts tristan hill it puts these guys on notice like hey there's no, there's no position here just waiting for you you're gonna have to come in and you're gonna have to earn it so i mean we're already talking about having nine dts on the roster jordan elliott you want to stick around buddy you're gonna have to come in here and show us something you know we got a lot of names in this room and just bringing a guy like this in with the specific role you know i think it puts pressure on the other guys to figure out who are the four best on this roster do you think uh tommy Chogel's now gone he's done he's got a very very strong hill to climb 
But all right, so here I'll, I'll go through the quickly the summary on Ika before we move on to our next pick, who just may be bigger than Ika. Two-year starter at Baylor, Ika lined up at nose tackle and head coach Dave Aranda's hybrid 3-3-5 base scheme, playing multiple techniques, one, two I, and three on the interior. After winning the national championship at LSU as a freshman, he followed Aranda to Baylor and earned all Big 12 honors each of the last two seasons. Ika plays with the power, awareness, and joint flexibility to press blockers off his frame and find the football versus the run. For a player his size, he is light-footed with the short area explosiveness and hand usage to defeat blocks. However, his best flashes can be found in the 2021 tape, and he struggled to make backfield plays in 2022, partly because of his role. Ika is a nimble, disruptive big man with stout, powerful traits, but all of his impressive parts don't consistently add up to the impact plays. He is a toolsy size prospect with a high floor as an early down NFL nose while also flashing the ability to be more. Number 71 overall prospect, second, third round grade from Brugler. And then if we jump over to look at PFF and where they rank, 88th on their big board, and he comes in as the seventh best defensive tackle. Well, the next pick, we thought Ika was big. Then... It grew. It Jack, was, what was your initial take? I was really, really happy with this pick because the the upside is phenomenal. Um, there is a great chance that he could turn out to be a starting tackle in the NFL. Um, but if it goes wrong at this point, who cares? It's a fourth round pick. Um, but I want to bet on that upside because if he hits it out, say he goes the route of Orlando Brown, someone that... People were saying, could he even be a tackle? Is it going to work out? And he's now a 20 million a year player. So the, the upside is phenomenal. And that, that's why if you're going to swing for picks, you don't want to swing for, oh, could this guy be a, a 3 million a year, a 5 million a year player? Could this guy realistic? And it's realistic. We're not talking about projection of going, oh, what if this random like linebacker hits and becomes um, like Luke Keekley? It's in this guy's wheelhouse that he could be a 20 million a year player. And that is something that I'm really excited about. Um, there's some discontent within the organization reports that a certain O-line coach didn't want him. Scouts weren't a fan of him. Andrew Berry still pushed the button and went, hey, let's see what we've got. Yeah, for those that don't know, we're talking about the big man, Dewan Jones from Ohio State. He played right tackle at Ohio State. But, I mean, Dewan... So obviously I still have some people in Columbus that I know, and I've been kind of texting around basically what I'm I've heard is he's a big human. He's not a big personality. He's a quieter kid. Those that he knows he's very outgoing with, but he's not a guy that would wow you in an interview in terms of how you're going to get to know him. He's not, you know, one of those Demario Davis, Anthony Walker, you know, leader of the pack mentalities. Um, when he first got to Ohio State, there was a little bit of an effort thing with him. He kind of thought he could just kind of skate on by using his raw talents. Um, and I think he got into a couple of the coaches' doghouses early in his career, not because of personality, just mainly because they thought he had so much more potential than I think he understood. So this is a guy that was kind of debating basketball, football, coming into college. Justin Fry, from what I understand, the Ohio State offensive line coach was able to get through to him the last couple of years and really just help him develop into the football player we see. There, there may be a little bit of that blindside lack of mean streak from what I get. 
in that he doesn't have that natural mauler mentality. That was the way it was worded to me was he doesn't have that. Just, I want to throw you out of the, you know, throw you out of the kitchen to use a balding term every single play. So it'll be interesting to see what happens once he gets into the building with, you know, with Bill Callahan, I can see how some scouts would really value him. And I could see how some scouts may not. But I think for what the Browns want to do with the power running game, Jones is a guy that could see your point, Jack, in two years, some more play time, more playing time than you know you'd normally expect out of a, a fourth round pick, especially being at the offensive tackle. I mean, this guy is over six foot eight inches. He weighed into the combine at three hundred and seventy four pounds, with an arm length of thirty six and three eighths with an 11 and five A's hand and ran a five, three, which isn't terrible for somebody that massive. I don't think people understand how big six, eight, three seventy five is. Guys, do you think, do you see him coming in as a swing tackle or do you think the plan is for him to actually become a right tackle for the Cleveland Browns? I think he'll probably do this season starting as the fourth. And then next year, they'll see, can he step up? Because who knows? It might really work out and they they still haven't at this point made the decision on Jed Wills and they might go, look, we're going to see what happens there. Um, I think it's unlikely he'll move to left tackle, but hey, they said the same thing about Orlando Brown um, and he's managed to go and do it. So I think they, they've got a giant ball of clay and they're going to work it out. But I, I would expect him just to be the fourth choice for a year and they're like, hey, let, let's see what happens. And you could be in a year's time where he's not even on the roster. Um, it wouldn't shock me. But it's worth the risk. For a, such a, a, There's not many positions you can get a guy that legitimately could start in a year's time at a 20 million plus position at this late on. Yeah. And, and for those that want to see what good Dewan Jones looks like, go watch Senior Bowl practice day one. Now, again, this was a situation we're talking about. He went out there in day one and was just absolutely crushing everybody. And then something off, we don't know, really. There was an injury, potentially. They There there was a lot of things about him firing up the engines again. He didn't really do much at the pro day other than the just basic measurements. There was, there was something off the field. Maybe he was getting bad advice. I don't know. But if you want to see what good Dewan Jones looks like, go turn on that first day of the Senior Bowl tape. And just to touch on where, like, PFF and stuff ranking. We're not getting so he's 31 on their big board um, and their sixth best offensive tackle. But if we look back to 2021, he was their 19th best tackle in the entirety of college football out of 610 tackles. Last season, he was their 13th best tackle out of 610 tackles again. So two years running, he's been the 20th best in the top 20 of best tackles in the whole of college. So there is track record of him doing it. Um, he has the physical traits to do it. The, the upside is just incredible. And this is a guy who in high school obviously got tons of basketball offers, obviously given his size. Um, but there was talk that he got, I think they mentioned on the program that this guy got division one scholarship offers from ball state, Bowling green, Cleveland state, Kent state. So he has that athleticism. You know, one thing I was, I kind of pulled up in the, uh, when I was looking at Brugler's notes on there. So Nick Herbig, the linebacker who went to the Steelers a little bit later then said that Jones was the best blocker that he had faced and said, that guy is a monster. And he, he really is. If you watched any Ohio State games, they made sure to mention 
Nike had to make the largest jersey they've ever made for a college football player for Dewan Jones. So it'll be interesting just to give you the summary. Two-year starter at Ohio State, Jones lined up at right tackle in head coach Ryan Day's zone RPO-based offense. Although it took time for his mentality to change from I'm a basketball player to I'm a football player, he showed improvements each year in Columbus, including an All-American senior season in which he did not allow a single sack. As a run blocker, Jones flashed the heavy hands to steer and create movement and uses his natural size to cave in defenders on down blocks. As a pass blocker, he is effective when he can quick set, eliminate space, and get his hands on his target before they get into their rush. But covering up inside on a wide nine NFL speed is a different animal. Overall, Jones needs continued refinement with his decision-making and reaction skills, but he is a masher in the run game and his rare size and length and improved balance and pass pro have him on the trajectory to be an NFL starter. He will be valued higher by NFL teams that covered size and run blocking at right tackle 62nd overall prospect given a second round grade. What will be interesting to me and Paul, you may want to touch on this when you have somebody with his size understanding the kinesiology and the body and how it relates to blocking and effectiveness is something that Joe Thomas excels at, right? I wouldn't be shocked if you see Joe start explaining to DeWand angles and all that other stuff, because if there's one person that understands movements and bends of the body and how to get yourself in the right position, it's Joe Thomas. So this could be one of those ones where he's working with Jed Wills on the left side and he's working with, you know, Dewan Jones on the right side, because in year one, let's be honest, we're going to see him in jumbo packages, goal lines, smash mouth, where we're just putting the ball on the line and we're saying, hey, Chubb, go right behind that guy, because you're going to have Conklin and Dewan Jones lined up next to each other. And that's going to be a formidable force. Uh, and by the way, if you stack the line to that side, then we'll just run it to the other side. And just go onto Twitter and search his name and then basketball. There were some hilarious videos I was watching yesterday as they were coming up on Twitter after the pick. And it literally looks like he's playing children. Um, he's running around and it looks like he's playing like kids about 10 years old. But it, it's ridiculous. My, uh, my senior year of high school, we our basketball team, I didn't play basketball, but our basketball team played a, uh, the school out of Cleveland St. Ed's and they had a guy named... Um, Oh, what the heck was his name? Jawad Williams. The guy was like six, seven. Right. And it was, you watch this guy play and you're just like, he, even our guys were big. We're division one. We had six, four, six, five guys, six, seven and six, eight is a just different size of height. I mean, even if you're six, three, you look up at these guys, like they're just towers. So it'll be interesting. I like, I, I like, I like you, Jack think the upside of this pick, I forgot. I was putting together my list of guys on day two and our, you know, day two. I'm like, oh, you look at it here, blah, blah, or going into day three. I'm sorry. And I'm like, oh, I forgot DeWan Jones. We talked about him at pick 74. We talked about him sliding to 74. Hell, 98 was a, a, a phantom at 111. This should, that should have been a layup. I wouldn't be shocked if they sprinted that pickup. Yeah, no, I, I was, it was one that I was talking about as potentially 74. It was, it was definitely the way to compensate for us losing Tommy. Uh, at a bar, a the pick right before. So the Colts went with Tommy at a bar and then Dylan Horton, my sleeper edge. He went to pick before that. And then Clark Phillips went a couple picks after that. So this was that, that one Oh five to one twelve where you had Keely Ringo, Blake Freeland, Dylan Horton, Tommy at a bar, a, you know, Dewan Jones, Clark Phillips, Chandler Zavala. There was a solid group of guys 
right in that 10 pick stretch that I think a lot of people, you know, were big high on another guy, you know, Colby Wooden was the guy that you saw in a lot of the Browns fans mock drafts too. So this was a nice little sweet spot for the Browns at one eleven. Yeah, no, I've, I think that's everything wrapped up on that pick. Yep. Now, Jack, pick 126. By the way, anyone else notice all the Browns were going to trade picks up down here? Uh, not so much. The picks rolled around and we took guys at that spot. The Browns, this is the pick they got from Minnesota. Uh, pick 126 in the fourth round. So this was part of that pick swap, if I'm not mistaken, because it says Minnesota traded a fourth round selection and a fifth round selection to Cleveland Exchange for the fourth round selection. So this was last year's pick. Jack, what do you want to talk about? Isaiah McGuire, defensive end, Missouri. The dude just gets the callback. Um, and that's all I want. Um, comes in with an 82.0 pass rush grade for PFF. Um, 95th on their big board. Um, and it's it's an incredibly talented edge rushing class. They had to go out and get somebody. It would have been intriguing. If Adebore would have been on the board um, with their last pick, I think they would have probably gone with it. And then they probably don't get McGuire. Um, but it's one that the, the guy just does what you want. Um, and perfect then fit for age and relative athletic score as well. So, yeah, I just really, really happy we got him. He was sort of the one for me looking through everything was like, if there's a guy that's going to be a Cleveland Brown, Isaiah Maguire was it. Um, yeah, he's, he's long and powerful. It has pretty good um, run grade two coming in at 74.3. And that is really important because you've got Okoronkwo that is going to be your specialist if they're passing great, doesn't really have the strength in the run game. And even Isaiah um, Thomas struggled in the run game last year. Um, whereas this just gives them another dynamic. So um, I'm, I'm really, really happy with this pick. He, he's my guy. Yeah, I think we knew that the Browns needed to get youthful bodies on that defensive line. Paul, did, did it shock you that the Browns waited all the way to pick 126 to kind of address the edge position? It it does, to be honest. I thought we need this more than a wide receiver, to be honest. Um, I would like to have taken our first pick, a defensive end. Um, quick question for you two is, what... Which defensive end do you see this guy coming in as? I think he'll be edge four to start. I I, I think there's an interesting one, and I, I we could, there's a a UDFA we'll get to of no. I think there's four bodies, and there's just going to be an all out battle um, for sort yeah. of what happens. That there's three depth spots, four bodies. Um, I think they're in a really really nice spot there. Um, I think it, it's weird because it's not like a normal position where you've got a starter and a backup. You've got your two starters and then you're just going to rotate based on who you're playing down and distance. Um, so they've, they've got different styles. And I, I think it's one where you'll see different games where maybe Maguire gets more snaps and another game where Wright gets more snaps. And there might be a game where Isaiah Thomas um, then gets more snaps. So I, I think they've got a really, really nice and intriguing group where it, I, it's not going to be stagnant. It, if he plays best in camp, he is going to go straight up to three um, the top two are locked in, but behind that, he could easily outsnap Wright and Thomas. Yeah, I think you got Garrett and you got Oboe as your one and two, and then you kind of got a battle there. And listen, Alex Wright, it's just a different style than Maguire. So I think you're right. I think it's going to be a lot of matchup base. But Isaiah Thomas, hey, listen, seventh round picks, you're going to have to fight, 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 fight for your right to party. That's for sure, because 
the Browns need to make this room more competitive. And if we're going to be going with wide nines and seven splits and, you know, five eyes and all these other unique concepts of that defensive line, you're going to need different styles of guys, right? And this is a room they've obviously loaded up with potentials for the D tackle room. They didn't have a lot in that edge position. So I think McGuire, who's, you know, he's right up there, 6'4", 260, 70 uh, pounds. I mean, this is what they want. They want them big edge setting, you know, edges who can not only rush the passer, but they could also not get blown out of their lanes, right? So to answer your question, Paul, I think the question or the, the drama that they had in terms of that pick, if they would have gone even with their first pick at uh, 74, the crop of guys that was going on around there. I mean, obviously my guy, Zach Harrison was taken with the very next pick, but then you had, you know, Byron young, the kid from Tennessee. Then you had the Yaya Diaby. You didn't really have a guy who was probably going to step in right away and be much better. So if they had McGuire and say, Yaya Diaby right in that same buck, they probably knew, Hey, I can just wait 30, 40 picks and get somebody that's going to be pretty much the same thing. Cause the Jack's point the edge class was very deep, but it was also very kind of heavy in one area of guys that are going to have to come in. I think if you're looking at, I mean, uh, McGuire was the 15th ranked prospect on Brugler's big board, right? And I think we looked at a few of the guys coming first round from Van Ness to Tyree Wilson, all those guys. Well, Derek Hall, Vosky, Diaby, Harrison, McGuire, you know, Thule, that group, that, you know, third tier of guys, they're probably indistinguishable between some of the people on the draft board. So they liked him. They liked the spot that they could get him at. How many times have we heard Depot say it? We have groups of guys in certain areas. And if nobody's left from that group, we trade back. If there's a guy we don't think is going to be there, they could trade up, you know, a pick or two. This could be one where at 74, they looked and said, we've only got one wide receiver left and it's Cedric Tillman. This is the guy we want. And we have six edges that we're happy with knowing that one of them is going to be down there. And especially after the draft played out and seeing most of those guys, you know, still maybe in their bubble that was there after pick 111. Who knows? Because the only defensive end that went or defensive player that went between Dewan Jones and as Isaiah McGuire was Cam Young, the defensive tackle for Mississippi State. So the Browns under oh, Colby Wooden is another one, but no edges went after Dylan Horton and Tommy Atabare. That was it. There was no edges. The Browns got the very next edge at pick 126. Yeah, and it was almost a drop off once you had Atabare and then you had um, McGuire. It, there was a, a distinct different tier we were going into with anything left. Um, so I think that they got good value striking there. Yeah, and this is a guy, he's got to come in and earn his spot. I mean, there's no doubt about it. So just to give you the background on McGuire, three-year starter at Missouri, McGuire was a hand-on-the-ground defensive end in defensive coordinator Blake Baker's 4-2-5 base scheme. Although he also reduced inside at times, he led the Tigers in sacks as a junior and senior and planted his flag as one of the best all-around defensive ends in the SEC with his 2022 season. McGuire is stout at the point of attack with the long arms and lateral quickness to defend multiple gaps. Although he isn't sudden as a pass rusher, he has strong strides and body flexibility to wrap the outside shoulder of offensive tackles or create forceful knockback with his bull rush. Overall, McGuire needs further polishing to truly maximize his skill set, but he is long, agile, and powerful enough to effectively leverage blockers and disrupt both the run and the pass. He is a scheme-diverse prospect 
and projects as a future NFL starter. Number 94 prospect on the big board, third, fourth round grade. So right in the range they got him. And it's not unrealistic to talk about potentially that's a, a future beyond Miles Garrett. Because in four years' time, what, Miles Garrett's going to be early 30s. Um, that It's one that if it goes really, really well, who knows? Um, yeah, just, just to sort of throw that out. Was, it, there is a, some of the guys getting drafted now will hit veteran deals when some of these core parts of the Browns roster are retired. So overall, I think a pretty good value pick, honestly, for the Browns, even at that point there at, you know, 126. But, you know, now we're moving on. We're moving on to the. I've the... got a quick question, guys. Oh, go for it, Paul. Sorry, brother. Out of them four picks, um, how do you rate them in your, you are most personally excited about? I would say Tillman, Dewan Jones, Ika, and McGuire. That's my, that's my order. I would say. Tillman, Maguire. I'll put Ika above Juwan Jones because I don't want to see Juwan Jones for the next two years. Oh, I, I meant more. I don't. I don't meant like excited to see him play next year. I'm just excited for what they can be. Right to your point, Jack, about can this guy develop into a twenty million dollar offensive tackle? That's the part that excites me. Oh yes, Juwan Jones is by far the most exciting prospect because he, he has the best route to be valuable. I'd, I'd say Tillman. Him and Tillman really close at the top. Then I'd say Maguire and yeah, Ika. I've got. If Ika does his job, it should be incredibly boring, and that is fine. Yeah. So, fifth round Go comes on, rolling man. around. No, you're good. Fifth round comes rolling around here. Well, the Browns decided Deshaun Watson. Here's a little competition for you. They bring – and listen, Jack, I, I get that sometimes there are certain prospects that you can look at, and they just make a lot of sense for the Browns. And I think a lot of people saw Dorian Tomlin, Thompson Robinson, the quarterback from UCLA – I was a little shocked they had to use pick 140 on him, but obviously I just give the benefit of the doubt to general managers that they know the board better than I do. Just because mock drafts had him going in the sixth and seventh round does not mean that's really where he was going to go. There was a record number of quarterbacks taken with the top 150 picks this year. So Clayton Toon goes right before him. Aiden O'Connell to the Raiders before that. Stetson Bennett, Jake Hayner. I mean, these quarterbacks were flying off the board. The Browns go and get DTR, Commonly referred to as Dorian Tomlinson Robinson, quarterback from UCLA. Jack, what was your actually? You know what, Paul? What was your initial thoughts on taking the mobile athlete in DTR? Yeah, I've got to be honest with you. Uh, I didn't see us taking a call call to back. I thought it was a bit of a wasted pick, to be honest. Just, just my thought. I thought they'd be better take a cornerback or. Yeah, more depth in other places or a safety. We definitely need a safety. So, um, yeah, a little bit surprised. Well, they didn't wait long to take a corner, but we'll get to that. So, all right, Jack, I mean, he's right. Jamie Robinson was still on the board at this point. They decided to go a different route. Um, Daniel Scott, Antonio Johnson. There was a lot of safeties on the board, but the Browns went quarterback. So, Jack, what was your take on it? Yeah, so if I'm sat there in the GM chair, I'm taking Antonio Johnson. So, I will... Put that out there to begin with, because it's different to what's then going to follow. Um, but if you love a quarterback, you take them. And it's as simple as that, regardless of who is your starter. And there's sort of two different philosophies in the NFL on where you stash your third quarterback. About half the league will have them on the practice squad, and about half the league will have them on the roster on the 53. And 
basically the cheerleader of that and why so many teams do it is Harry Roseman. So it shouldn't come as a massive surprise that Andrew Berry, with the Harry Roseman sort of mentorship, has that sort of mentality. Look, let's add more quarterbacks. And they showed last year that they they see value in adding more quarterbacks. If Deshaun Watson doesn't work out, they can't be sat there with their dicks in their hand going, oh, we don't know. It's all wrong. Um, because they're gone. And you only have to look at a couple of years ago, or something on a couple of years ago, the Eagles were widely panned. Everyone outside the analytics community, what on earth were they doing when they selected Jalen Hurts? If they don't select Jalen Hurts, they aren't in the Super Bowl last year. Howie Roseman could potentially be fired because he's being judged for what happened with Carson Wentz. Instead, Carson Wentz was a disaster with an extension, but he went, hey, look at this shiny toy, Hurts, and they've gone on and had success. So I think it's a, if, if their evaluation is they really like DTR, and there's a, there's a case there that if they didn't have Deshaun Watson, are they potentially taking DTR in the second and third round? Because if they believe that much in him, you take that guy with a fifth round pick and you develop him. And it might be one where you just develop him and he goes on, maybe you trade him a few years down the line because another team wants to take a shot on him because he's come in and played well in the preseason games. Maybe this, our season's wrapped up and we've qualified for the playoffs and he's allowed to play the final week of the season because it's a nothing game. Who knows with those different scenarios? But if they like him, you go out and take them because DTR could be the difference between them losing their jobs or not. And even Antonio Johnson, who I would have taken isn't going to be that dramatic a difference, whereas DTR could be the thing that saves them. I had to laugh when I saw a comp for Antonio Johnson that said Ronnie Harrison, and I was like, oh boy, that could be an interesting one. Um, yeah, listen, I think anybody that stayed up late and gambled on football like some of us degenerates do are very well aware of DTR's game and what he is. And this is a guy, and they said this when he got drafted, he needs coaching. He needs coaching. The game... He's he almost is much more comfortable when he's running around and you know the play out of you know out of the pocket than he does in a drop back passing type of game. And we've actually said very similar things about Deshaun Watson in terms of you know when when things are moving it in terms of the speed of the game at the speed and also moving around when they're playing outside of structure, he he tends to do very well. But you're talking about a guy that's going to come into camp and has to compete against Kellen Mond, right? And who knows? They could have a very specific set of plays in terms they want to see DTR run. You're going to see him mainly in the preseason, right? You're going to see him run around. He's a tough kid. I mean, they talked continually about how Chip Kelly said this is the toughest guy, you know, he's he's ever been around. So with DTR, just to give you a, a, a high level on him, five-year starter at UCLA, DTR showed steady improvements each season in Chip Kelly's balanced offensive attack and had his best season as a super senior with a school record 69.6% completions. He departs Westwood as the school's all-time leader in several categories, including total offense, completions, touchdown passes, and total touchdowns. With his live, accurate arm, the ball spins clean off his hand, and his dual-threat skills allow him to create off-schedule plays. DTR handled quite a bit in Kelly's offense, checks at the line, multiple play options based on reads, snap rate, pre-snap reads, 
but he's still prone to youthful mistakes, especially when things get hectic. Overall, DTR plays panicked at times and must take better care of the football, but he has an NFL-quality arm with the toughness and ability to create that will appeal to pro teams. His veteran presence will help him compete for a backup role very early in his NFL career. And just on that, um, we talk about surplus value with the Eka pick. The, the top backups in the NFL are getting five to $8 million a year. If he turns into one of those guys, potentially for three years, because it probably I expect them to keep Dobbs and he's going to be probably the third for get rolling this first season. Um, and it might be one they move Dobbs during the season. Who knows? Um, because you can trade him and move one and a half million that onto the new team. But if he is five to eight million worth of player for the next three, four years, that is great return in value. That, that's more sort of surplus value than you're going to get from Ika. So... Um, yeah, just want to note there that th- there is upside for that, even if he maybe fills in for one, two games for Deshaun Watson, that it can still be nice. Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, we just want to see, we're going to want to see this guy play, right? We're going to want to see him in the orange and brown. You know, is he a poor man's RG3? We'll find out. I mean, that's really ultimately what it comes down to. Um, but he was the first of these kind of two picks and three picks uh, with the second one being Cameron Mitchell, the cornerback out of Northwestern. Um, just a high level on him, 5'10", a buck 90, ran a 4'47". Um, I believe it hits all of your uh, RAS age and all of his um, guardrails in terms of that. Brugler had him as the 13th ranked cornerback and gave him a third round grade. So another value pick in terms of where the consensus had him. Jack, what was your initial take on Cameron Mitchell? Not the restaurateur for all my Columbus people. Cameron Mitchell is a very well-known guy who owns a ton of restaurants in Columbus, but former teammates with Greg Newsom. So there is a little Browns connection. Yeah, so I really like the pick. Um, More of an outside corner than an inside corner. Cottrell Clark was the sort of guy in this range that lots of Browns people were mocking. I I, I tended to lean towards more Cameron Mitchell. Um, More of an outside could probably play in the middle. Um, there's potential an option for him to move to strong safety. Played about 100 or so snaps each season in the box, um, which isn't where you would normally expect a corner to play. And to be fair, in college, there's only a few great teams in the entirety of college football that have that many talented corners that their third choice corner is then a slot and is draft worthy um, when it comes to the pros. So that is a difference of why there's only a few natural slots that get drafted out. It's usually guys taken in the fifth round or later that get to the NFL and they're just happy to go in the slot because it's the only time they can play. But I think this is an upside pick that in a year's time, we're realistically talking they could trade one of the, the three core starters in Ward, Newsom, and Emerson, and then he can be your next man up. And I think even if it's one where they just move on from Green in a year's time and he's corner four, I'm happy with that as well. So I think it's a really, really nice development piece for the team. Um, lots and lots of upside. Um, PFF had him high. I think it's like 115 or something there um, because they they see the value in what he can do. He's uh, 111, so 111, um, and they've brought him in. And hey, I, why not take a corner every year? I think we'll see quarterback probably taken every year unless they really like DTR and they're just happy with the two of them. But we could easily see darts every year at corner. I mean, do you think Greg Newsom's most happy because maybe this lessens his burden of playing inside a little bit more? Who knows? Um, no, there was a burden a... of being on the Browns. 
there was a little funny thing. So in a background, it said here that um, Mitchell followed in the footsteps of his close friend and former Northwestern cornerback, Greg Newsom, whom he has known since he was 11 years old. So him and Newsom go way back. Uh, Cameron's dad, I guess, was a running back and wide receiver at Northern Illinois and was pretty crazy good at it. So, you know, listen, to your point, this is a guy who's going to come in and battle for one of those last cornerback spots. At the end of the day, he's going to have to make his cut on special teams. We all know that. That's really where these guys at this point are going to come in and really show people what they can do. Um, the idea of the funny part is, is a little bit of a Browns connection. So Mitchell was a two-year starter at Northwestern and he played boundary cornerback in former defensive coordinator, Jim O'Neill for Browns fans. You may remember Jim O'Neill, former Browns defensive coordinator base cover four scheme. When his close friend, Greg Newsom was banged up late in the 2020 season, he stepped into his role and quickly developed into one of the team's best defensive players, a smooth, competitive corner. Mitchell has athletic framework with the play strength and coverage timing to disrupt passing windows. He just needs to pull down more interceptions. Well, that must be a thing over there at Northwestern. They can't intercept the ball. Though he is fearless jumping plays, NFL quarterbacks will look to expose his greedy tendencies and catch him out of position. Overall, Mitchell needs to continue to develop his eye discipline to better match up with NFL receivers. But that, but his athleticism, aggressiveness, and smarts give him the scheme versatility that NFL teams desire. He will be ready to compete for NFL starting reps as a rookie. Number 85 overall prospect, third round grade. So this is a guy that Brugger is obviously pretty high on in terms of that. So to your point, Jack. I think you covered everything with this guy. I mean, this is exactly what he's talking about. You know, Paul mentioned earlier in the show about a cornerback at pick 140. Well, they saw a guy and they really liked him and they knew that pick 141 wasn't going to be a cornerback. It was a big guy. Uh, Jacqueline Roy, I believe, went in between the two picks. So overall, more value. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Let's add talent. And hey, if he can't beat out one of the other guys, that's a good thing too. That is a good thing because that means that those other guys are playing pretty well. Yeah, and I'm happy for him just to be a depth piece. If we don't see him play a defensive snap for the entire rookie season, that's not a bad thing. That means everyone's healthy. Um, if we're seeing him playing lots of snaps, it means something's gone wrong um, because too many corners are on IR. So uh, perfectly happy yeah. here. Um, yeah. And then on to the final pick, Ohio State. Yeah, this was a guy I had uh, put out there as well as somebody to keep an eye on. Um, the odd part is, is I didn't think he was going to last to pick 190 I thought they were going to have to use a little bit higher of a pick on him but again I don't know I'm just going off what I see and I'm just going to tell you right now I've seen every single game that Luke Whipler has played at Ohio State you know he's a six foot two 303 pound six three uh third year junior so to say uh Brugler had him as the fourth ranked center with a fourth to fifth round grade in terms of the guardrails how did he how did he stack up in terms of the guardrails Jack um, I've not got them open here, but he, he came in at it's 22.1 or 22.2. You, so right, I'm just going to say you have him as a round three, 22.4, 9.31 RAS. So if you slide him down to the fifth, I believe he goes green Ideal. across the board. Yeah. Yeah. So I do. Um, and this is one that before Pochich was signed, Browns fans were mocking him as early as pick 42. People were happy to take Luke Whitepler. And that just really drives the point. He's slightly smaller, and I'm guessing that's why he dropped. That teams are looking at him and going, slightly smaller center. Do we want that guy, or do do we not? And some people will have different schemes of what they want to do in their run game, where 
you need a slightly bigger center. But the value is phenomenal. Um, we spoke about on these shows, I think it was, where I said, hey, Nick Harris, not a lock. And the reason Nick Harris isn't a lock is because he's only got one rookie year left. If Nick Harris had two rookie years left, they're probably not taking this pick. Um, mm -hmm. And they took Nick Harris with the plan of two years down the line, the guarantees are gone in Tretter's deal. Now we're going to ask Harris to step up and start. That was the plan, and it was all going well until he got injured. He was beating Pochic out in training camp, and now we're back in exactly the same scenario. Bring in Luke Weipler, got two years to learn behind Pochic, and then you're going to go out and start because we'll just say, move on from Pochic's third year, save a bit of money and move to you. That is plan okay. A. Who knows? It could happen quicker. The White Blood has a great rookie year behind him. Pochic regresses because we've only seen one amazing year from him. That could be a, a thing to keep an eye on, but amazing, amazing value. This is someone PFF were incredibly high on. Um, pull up exactly where he was on their board. Second best center, 54 um, on their big board. Um, and just phenomenal grades for two years. Um, yeah, uh, everything you want to see, um, you went and delivered. So just, you can't turn down that level of value. I will say this. So as I was asking around Dewan Jones, you know, also you know Whipler comes out there. And so I started, you know, just texting the same people. There was a lot of people in Columbus that were a little bit upset that Whipler did not come back. I think that, you know, Ohio State had recruited a center a couple of years ago, Harry Miller, who stepped away from football because of his mental health, and Whipler kind of got put in. So if you look, he didn't play his freshman year, uh, but he only played two seasons after, at, the, at Ohio State. So he was a guy that I think even Ryan Day said, come back, let's develop you for another year. He made the decision that he was going to go pro, but – he definitely could have used one more year at Ohio state, but I think if he does go back to Ohio state, there's no chance in heck you're getting him at pick 190, right? So this is a guy who with one more year of playing at the college level would have shown that, Hey, with development, he likely has seen better. He has better football ahead of him. However, in saying that he's looking at it like, well, I can get the same coaching now at the NFL level and make money for it. So maybe that's his, his stick there, but this is a guy to your point, Jack, I fully expect this year to be a redshirt year for him, right? Come in, learn. He is likely going to be a practice squad candidate. You just got to hope that there's not some, you know, run of center injuries around the league and somebody ends up having to poach him or something like that. But yeah, this is a guy who I could totally see Bill Callahan really just saying, this is my kind of guy. This is the center. This is that Alex Mack high IQ guy that you really want. In summary on him, two-year start at Ohio State, Whipler was entrenched at center and head coach Ryan Day's zone RPO-based offense. A high school offensive tackle, he made the move inside where he was the starting center for all 25 of C.J. Stroud's college starts. Stroud has stated that Luke is probably one of the smartest people I've ever been around. He is the smartest O-lineman I've ever met in my life. Whipler is a quick, efficient mover with outstanding football IQ and communication skills. However, he labors to sustain if not perfectly square, especially with defenders on his edge, and can be stacked when he isn't in position to break contact. Overall, Whipler is sawed off and will be a force fed will be force-fed vegetables as he adapts to NFL power. But his above average athleticism and handwork help him stay in position. He is ideally suited for a zone team and projects as an NFL backup with potential to be more. Given a fourth, fifth round grade. So this is kind of in the range you got him, obviously late there in the fifth, early sixth. Yeah, so really nice. 
Anything you want to touch on before I talk about a reason why they traded out in the seventh round? Um, no, I mean, I think we saw the, the need for the interior O-line. I think when you look at just the summary, right, we're talking wide receiver, defensive tackle, offensive tackle, you know, defensive end, cornerback, quarterback, center. I mean, Jack, they hit the core positions all day, every day, right? They didn't get a linebacker. They didn't get a safety. They didn't get a running back. They must have been listening to you, Jack. They know how much you just dislike these positions. And they said, no problem. We'll just go out and get those guys in uh, the undrafted free agent market. Because like you said, seventh round pick, Browns are waiting around. Who are we going to get? Who are we going to get? With the 229th pick, the Baltimore, Baltimore Ravens. The Browns trade out at pick 228 to the hated the hated Baltimore Ravens. But Jack, what's the what's the good side of this trade? So I, I reached out to someone and just said, hey, what why? Um, and their response was that the reason why the Browns look to move on their seventh round pick, it genuinely really helps with recruitment of undrafted free agents. Because if you have a seventh round pick and you're trying to chat to these guys on the phone and you've just picked someone else other than them. It just leaves a bad taste in some players' mouths where you go, oh, we think this other guy's better than you and stuff like that. Whereas by trading out, and this is the third out of four years where they've not drafted a player in the seventh round. It was only last year where they used two, and that's the only time they've done one, where I, it, I think it's philosophy and something we'll probably see consistently year in, year out, where unless there's someone they absolutely adore, they're not going that route of drafting seventh rounders and they're going to focus on bringing in more UDFAs. So um, just something to be aware of. And to be fair, the logic f- makes a lot of sense. If you're on the phone to Ronnie Hickman, who they went and signed as a UDFA and you've got three different guys, you're like, oh, we want to sign all these guys. And you say, oh yeah, if we draft you, um, suddenly it's like, oh, well, why? Oh yeah, we didn't have a seventh round pick, but you're the guy we would have gone after if we could have done this. It just sounds so much better when you're going out and recruiting because UDFAs can sign for whoever they want. Yeah, yeah. At the other end, we'll do another show on the UDFAs as they all kind of get signed. There's a lot of names out there. You've probably at this point seen many of them, uh, but until they're signed, sealed, and delivered, sometimes guys can kind of flip-flop between teams and stuff. So before we give us the real, because we're going to need Paul's undivided attention for this one. We know he's doing several other things and jumping in here and there, but you, we all know the UDFA show is the Paul Brown show. So we'll, we'll touch on that one another show. Just want to drop... I think Jack's, Jack's got the title now of undrafted free agent king. Now, nobody will support them like you do, brother. Now, one thing I just want to touch on um, is free agents because the focus has gone to which free agents they're going to do. And there's lots of people talking about they're going to sign an edge. Um, I don't see it. Um, they're, they're really happy, I think, where they're just. I'm expecting three positions they go after. Running back, Jared McKinnon makes a lot of sense. Defensive tackle, I still think Al Woods is on the cards, if not somebody else. And safety, even if it's someone like Andrew, uh, Ad, Adam Andrews um, or Andrew Adams, um, who was with the Tennessee Titans, or Joshua Carlu. They bring in one of those guys to compete. Um, I think they're the three positions, if you're keeping an eye out for where they go and address in free agency. And that safety might not be a guaranteed lock, but they'll come in and battle against the UDFA and uh, Anthony Bell, who is a former UDFA. Well, I guess he's still at a UDFA, but yeah. There you go. Overall, Jack, it's it's tough to say, like, we're going to grade picks, right? But I think overall, when we're just evaluating the value that the Browns got, not having a first round pick, not having a second round pick, 
you know, I thought they, they, they got a lot of guys that are going to fit because, you know, we kind of said there's not too many first and second, you know, spots on the roster available right now. Right. So if you do take guys in the first and second round now, you may have to bump somebody else out. That's kind of the idea of the rookie contract aspects, but the Browns are in a decent place and they just need to win now. You know, one thing I'll just say overall, I thought it was pretty disappointing that the, the Browns literally just weren't talked about. Like, I don't even think NFL Network covered the Luke Whipler pick. So the Browns are going to have to show people that this was a draft class because now all the grades are coming out and they're getting A's and, you know, some of the higher marks in the draft. And in the next show, we'll talk a little bit about who we kind of thought had good drafts and bad drafts. I haven't had a ton of time to just sit down and look at who all the great ones and who all the bad ones were. But overall, outside of the, you know, the Ika pick, was there any real pick that like wasn't kind of value add? I I just, I struggle to see a pick that I'm like, I hate that pick. It was such a nice draft um, all round. Yeah, Ika, I don't get, and I can understand why people are frustrated with the quarterback, but I think if you sit down and you really understand what goes into roster building and how important that pick could be between them getting fired or not, um, yeah, it, it, everything was really good. There were so many players taken um, on day three that should have been on day two. And it's not just, they got value there. Whipler, um, Maguire, uh, Jones, all of those three should easily have been day two picks. Um, if yeah. all, any of those were taken at 74 or 98, no one would have gone, oh, that's a reach. Um, that really just drives home the value of what they went out and did. Yeah. Also, another little fun thing, DTR and Cedric Toman, high school teammates. So there you go. Overall, I think... Barry kind of went back to that draft strategy. You know, when, when Paul had us kind of going through drafts past, we noticed that that 2020 draft, they were very consistent, stayed within the core positions. Jack, I think they went back there, right? I think they they looked at this draft as being an opportunity to just put guys in those core positions and just start pushing the bottom of the roster up, right? It's a lot easier to fill a fourth and fifth linebacker role midseason than it is to get in these young developing tackles and defensive ends and wide receivers. So... I think the Browns had a very specific strategy. I've only listened to a couple of the post game or the post draft press conferences at this point, but overall I think the Browns for what they had made very good use of the resources that were available to them. You know, it wasn't a sexy draft. Not a lot of these guys are going to start year one. Like you said, Ika might be the rookie of the year for this class only because he's the guy that actually sees, you know, a decent amount of snaps. Do I expect to see Tillman maybe with if I think if you can get him 20, 25 catches his rookie year, I think that would be a good thing. I'm not sure what David Bell had off the top of my head, but you know, I'd like maybe a little small uptick in production from him. Yeah. And it's one that you know, 24 catches, 214 yards. So let's, let's say 20 catches. Cause I think Tillman's going to be more downfield. If he can get at least 20 catches, 300 yards. That's my expectation for, uh, for Tillman. Yeah, and lots of people saying, hey, we don't need it to use all these picks. And then you get to day three and they're like, oh, there's so many good players. That's why the philosophy of you add lots more picks. If they'd have had extra picks and they took Zach Coons at tight end and they took um, Antonio Johnson at safety and they took one of these running backs, you could easily take another three picks and no one would have batted an eyelid that all these players aren't going to make the team. So they need to keep adding picks and hopefully we don't get into the same farce of getting every year of, Oh, they need, should trade up loads of picks. We don't need all these picks. We do. And there is value to having more, more options. So I mean, look at the Patriots. 
the Patriots at one point had what four fourth round picks or something like that. And they came out with, you know, they got Gonzalez and Keon White. They got that Sacramento State kid. They got the center. I mean, they had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine picks the Rams on day had three. More. How many nine picks on day three? The Rams draft was crazy and lots of great players in there as well. By the way, the Patriots drafted a kicker and a punter. Just for the record. <laughs> and they took the first guy that wasn't at the combine, I think. Yeah, they did. They took on Mark and they took him top 76. Uh, but you know what? They got freaking Gonzalez. They got the corner from Oregon. The guy was supposed to be a top seven, top eight pick. They got him at 17. So and we all know what happens with Belichick and DBs. This guy's going to be rookie of the year. He's going to sign a free agent contract with the Chargers. And he's going to be the worst corner in the league. It's amazing. The guy's a machine. So, no, it it is. It's. Every team has a little bit different of a strategy. And I just, I like the Brown strategy. I like what they're doing, you know, and Hey, this is, this is why the Steelers, this is why the Ravens, this is why these teams always have good draft classes. This is why Alex Highsmith goes from a third round pick to a starter, right? You just start drafting guys at positions you need that are important to the style of play you have and let them develop. Cause Jack, look at every position, right? We talk about, Cedric Tillman coming into Amari Cooper. We talk about Ika coming into Dalvin Tomlinson. We talk about Dewan Jones coming into Jack Conklin, Bill Callahan. We talk about um, Isaiah McGuire coming into Miles Garrett. Whipplers coming into Pochich who can show you like, hey man, this is what I had to do. I was a former second round pick and it didn't work out for me. Cam Mitchell has one of his good friends right there in the same room. Denzel Ward, he's got all these guys in there. This is what you want. DTR has, you know, a solid quarterback room and somebody he can look at in Deshaun Watson and say, hey, my style is similar to yours, right? You know, how how do you take care of the ball? Hopefully he doesn't do any off, you know, off-field stuff with him. Let's keep that separate. But you have guys in place to mentor these young guys. And this is how franchises are built. This is how consistency of winning is built. Consistency of winning. It's something, it's like, it's like a dodo bird in Cleveland. It just doesn't exist. We'll be here soon. Exciting times. Absolutely. So, yeah, once we get everything locked, signed, and the Browns release their list on the UDFAs, um, we'll get Paul back. Uh, Paul, of course, the man never sleeps on his birthday, so he's either working or partying. We're 89 players on the roster, so um, just to account there, they can fit one more guy on, and then after that, they've got to cut guys, move them on, add more. There you go. So that's it. The 2023 draft is in the books. And overall, the Browns are being highly regarded across the league. It's getting some great value picks amongst the uh, the draft the draft gurus on the uh, on the old so. Yeah.